might be unnecessarily said, but obviously since I'm here, Shane isn't. So I'm sure you might want to pray for him and Kevin and their families as they're traveling and having a, a time of vacation as well. We're going to be looking at the book of Hosea today in a nutshell, um, specifically chapters 1 through 3. Throughout Scripture, God uses many images to illustrate who he is and what he is doing. Jesus often spoke in parables or word pictures to illustrate the truths he was teaching. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, marriage is used as an illustration of God's love for mankind. He instituted marriage in Genesis as a foundational relationship and then uses that relationship over and over to illustrate his faithfulness to his people. There's the creation of Adam and Eve and then the joining of them in marriage. In Revelation 19, at the end of the book, there's a feast celebrated of the united kingdom of God and his bride. Jesus' first miracle helps in the celebration of a marriage. Again, in the Old Testament, you have Ruth united the marriage in Boaz, her redeemer. And then there's the steamy poetry of Solomon's song portraying he and his wife. Illustration over and over in, in the Bible about marriage. And then there's this strange yet beautifully lived out story of Hosea and Gomer. Some of you may not even know about Hosea in his book, much less the love story that he lives out with Gomer. But nestled between the prophets of Daniel and Joel, we are given the true story of a prophet and his bride that God used to tell a greater story, the story of God and his adulterous people. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn or you can find it on the screen here. I'm going to read from the first chapter of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take up yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
kind of a strange story. Chapter 1 tells us how God told Hosea to take a wife that would be unfaithful. That's not your normal picture of someone coming to you and saying, I found the bride for you. Most of you would turn, run, and, and never come back to that kind of an illustration. Yet, Hosea obeys. And as Gomer bears children to Hosea, God has Hosea use the children's names to illustrate the truths of judgment and warning to Israel. Some commentators speculate that Jezreel is Hosea's, but the other two children are not, that they might be from adulterous relationships. We don't know for sure, but it would play into the analogy with Israel if it is true. First, Gomer herself, her name means completion, including or indicating the all-out adultery and idolatry of Israel. Interestingly, as a side note, Gomer was the daughter of Diblam, whose name could signify one who was given over to sensuality. As with so many problems in life, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yet we don't have to stay imprisoned to the circumstances that we're born into. So Hosea and Gomer's first child is named Jezreel, which means God sows or God scatters. Jehu, a recent king, had gone far beyond God's instructions. Jehu had been told and commanded to kill Ahab and his household, King Jehoram and his servants of Baal, which he did. But then he also killed Ahaziah and 42 of his relatives. So, God is coming and announcing his judgment and scattering Jehu's kingdom from his family. The Assyrians break the bow of Israel, defeating Israel in the valley of Jezreel in 733 BC. Next is the girl Lo Ruhama, meaning no mercy. Can you imagine having that as your name? No mercy. Can you imagine that giving that to your daughter? I've seen some of your daughters, they're cute. Hey, there's my daughter, no mercy. What a name. God had been incredibly merciful to Israel over the years, but because of her persistent idolatry and spiritual adultery, God said he would not have compassion or mercy on her any longer. God sets Judah aside, though in this judgment because it had been a remnant of faithfulness and kings that stayed true to God. Their third child, a son they named Loami, or not my people. Imagine growing up with that name. That's not my kid. And I want everyone to know it. Names were given with much more depth of meaning in biblical times than they typically are today. But thank the Lord, he can also change your name, like he did for Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who wrestled with God. This name tells the people of Israel, who had been so long the people of God, his name was I Am, but he says, I will no longer be called his people. They had chosen repeatedly to worship other gods and make alliances with other nations for their strength. That God lets them know he is stepping aside. He's not breaking his unconditional promise to them, but letting them know that the relationship they have enjoyed for so long was going to change. The last phrase of chapter 1, verse 9, is literally read, I, not I am, to you. They have broken their covenant, and so God is removing his protection from them. They had chosen to not be his people. This is almost the end of chapter 1, but 
It's not the end. God cannot go back on his own word. He will keep his covenant. So in verse 10, God speaks hope. The judgment is not forever, but in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So often, like the history and the recordings of the Bible, we see the overview, then some detail, and then a recap. Hosea is similar to this. In chapters 1 through 3, he tells the personal story of Hosea and Gomer with some commentary on how it relates to Israel. But then in chapters 4 through 14, Hosea preaches to his brothers and sisters of Israel, of their sin and guilt, of God's pending judgment, then of his promise and hope to restore. We're just briefly looking at chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 2 summarizes Israel's struggle with the judgment she will endure and the repentance and return to God. In chapter 3, God tells Hosea to restore his relationship with Gomer by buying her out of slavery, probably in, in prostitution, and then bring her back home. Now, I want us to step back as if it were to watch the story unfold and consider how it might resonate with us. Most of us are not actual descendants of Israel, but we have been adopted into God's family and are called his bride. How might we see ourselves in this story of Hosea? Have we ever been like Jehu in Jezreel? In a place where we felt like we had been obedient to God, but didn't truly do what he had told us to do? Have we ever crossed a line because of our zeal? Or our anger, or our own desires fueled by self-righteousness? Have we harmed others in the name of doing what was right? Have we, in a sense, flexed our spiritual muscles in front of those who need our help and not our derision? God tells us to do things. Usually it's not in a voice out of the sky or the angel of the Lord coming to us. It's in the quiet study of his word or maybe a message from Shane or something we see or read. Do we simply obey? Do we ignore the parts we don't like or overemphasize the parts that we agree with? Do we need to confess our sin to God for not simply obeying? Or have we... Like Lo Ruhama, have we taken God's mercy or compassion for granted? Do we say things like, well, I'm, I'm just an old sinner. God will understand. Do we depend on a routine confessional and trust that God will not grow weary with our same old confession? The same old way for the same old thing? Do we expect God to be there and hold true to his character when we trample the grace he's already given to us? Perhaps, just perhaps, sometimes we're even like lo We go so far as to remove ourselves from God or his people. Do we take stock more in what we and our friends or our partners can do than to depend on the God that has been there by us for our strength and our security? Do we see God as a killjoy instead of being the true source of joy? Do we live more in our own will, our own desires, our own strength than doing things and saying like Jesus, not my will but yours be done? 
then do we wonder why God doesn't help. When all around our society has removed God as much as possible. But it's not just society. Do we ever remove God from our plans, from our thoughts, our hopes, our daily routine? Mrs. Graham said it well when she was asked when God seemed to be absent in some tragedies. She said, my God is a gentleman. He was asked to leave, so he did. Have we, by our actions, in essence, asked God to leave? We live as though we are not his people. So he steps aside. The good news is that just like Gomer, just like Israel, God has promised to restore us when we turn to him. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, God says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, the valley where Achan was stoned for taking the spoil from Jericho. I will make the valley of his trouble a door of hope. God gives his chosen people hope for the future. But he also gives us hope in this promise. Just like Rahab from Jericho was received into God's people for having faith in their God, we too gain this hope. Romans 9, 22, verses, verses 22 through 26 quotes Hosea. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Again, God uses Hosea to illustrate the idea to Israel. And in chapter 3, Hosea pays 15 shekels of silver and 9 bushels of barley, the price of a slave, to redeem Gomer from slavery and prostitution probably spending all that he had to do so. He brought her home, and he loved her. God draws us back in too. He allures us. He shows us how to come home. Jesus was sold for the same price and redeemed us from slavery to sin and its taskmaster. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't criticize us or shame us. He lovingly brings us back to himself and makes us in our valleys. He takes our places of failure and our shame, our places that should be punishment for us, and he makes those valleys a door to hope. God is shown to be beautiful through our ugly. He shines from our darkness. He strengthens and lifts us when we are weak. He turns ashes to new beautiful life. He takes our shattered image and makes it beautiful. One of the ways that God does this through our most, is through our most intimate friends. If you are married, hopefully that's your spouse. They see our deepest pains. They know our biggest fears. They share in our joys and in our sorrows. What we as spouses have is an opportunity in our marriage is to do what God did for Gomer through Hosea. 
He showed, Hosea showed Gomer the beautiful and faithful love of God. He redeemed her out of her sinfulness. He restored her to wholeness and to purpose. He loved her and he met her needs. When was the last time you saw a desperate need in your spouse or a friend and gave to them the love that they need out of grace? When's the last time you gave everything you had of your soul to redeem your spouse in their woundedness? You see, one other thing that we see from Jose is an example of how to forgive even when we have the legal right to condemn. The marriage of Hosea and Gomer point to an ever-merciful, ever-loving, ever-faithful husband. The God who will one day call his bride home to the place he's been preparing for us for two millennia. May we strive to show the beauty of marriage that Satan has shattered to a lost and dying world around us, but not just in marriage. In our daily life, may we show the image that we were made to reflect personally. It might be broken, but God will make it beautiful. Let's close in prayer. Father, oft times we look at the stories of the Old Testament the history of Israel, and we think, well, we wouldn't have done that. And yet, Lord, I pray, as the psalmist did, that you would search us and know us, that you would try our hearts and show us if there are any troublesome ways in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Help us, Lord, to simply obey. Help us not to take your mercy for granted. Help us to always look to you as our God, that we might be your people. In Jesus' name I pray.